Okay, so we're still in our section here, and like I said last week, hopefully be able to provide some answers as to what what's going on in verses 5 and 6. Remember, this is a very difficult portion. I mean, <laughs> it's funny. They're talking some millennialism, I suppose, so we're going to talk a little bit of millennialism as well, um, just because it does come up uh, in this in this portion of Scripture. But let's pray, and then we'll we'll talk about about some of that. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord God, we thank you for uh, your Word. We thank you for your day, Father. That again, we could come and gather as your people to worship you, Lord God. Well, we thank you that you've made us into a people, Father. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you've called us out of uh, the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father God, as we uh, look into your word, we pray that you'd guide us, you'd teach us, you'd help us to uh, see, hear, and understand, Lord, that we might grow in grace and in truth and in the knowledge of who you are and who we are uh, in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All righty. So, reading now. I suppose I should do that, right? We should read first before we jump in, and we should go back just a touch, just so we could get uh, a mite of context here. Uh, and you know what? We'll read a little bit beyond as well. We'll read down to verse... Oh, it's a good verse to go to. Let's see, what do I have? We'll read through verses 7 and 8. So, now muster your troops. Oh, again, this is Micah chapter 5. I don't believe I said that. We're still there. So, one. Yep, beginning at verse one, and we'll read through uh, verse eight. And we'll be focusing our attention on five and six. All right. So, let's read. Uh, now, must your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And remember, that rod is like a scepter. With a scepter, with a rod of rule, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time then she who is in labor has given, uh, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces or citadels, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes or sheiks, uh, tribal leaders of men, and they shall shepherd uh, the, the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, 
like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. All right. Well, you know, maybe we read verse 9 as well. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. That last one is just for good measure. Because um, <laughs> that leaves no room for defeat, does it, in any way, shape, or form. And your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. All right? Now, let's um, go through and do a couple things that we haven't done yet about verses 5 and 6. I mean, last week we just spoke about how uh, this raises a whole host of questions, right? Because as Christians, clearly this is talking about the uh, New Testament period, the New Covenant era, right? The Messianic period. The Messiah comes. He comes from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And he's given rule over Israel, and his name is great to the ends of the earth. And then what happens? He uh, brings in all of the people of God from all over. They all return, as it were, to Israel. And he shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So... And then his people do what? They dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And this is where it starts to get a bit difficult. We stop there, usually around Christmas time. And we don't really read this part. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. All right, so we said that this section, at least this oracle from 1 to 6, is broken down into a chiasm, right? It's structured chiastically. And so, too, is this section in 5 and 6. It's also broken down chiastically. So we have a chiasm within a chiasm here. And um, it's understood that like Philippians 2 being an ancient hymn of the church, that this was an ancient war song for Israel at the time. Uh, it's written in that manner anyway. So, and, and it's structured, like I said, chiastically. So let's look at that real quick, okay? It's a, it's a different kind of chiastic structure. Uh, Instead of having an A and an A prime, a B and a B prime, all funneling down to a central focus, this one really breaks down. We, it could be broken down like this. 1A, 1B, 1C, then 2A, 2B. That's the center. And then 1A, 1B, 1C, like this. All right. And he shall be their peace. And that partners up in verse 6, we see, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. And 1B, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, partners up uh, when he comes into our land in verse 6. And see, and treads in our, I'm sorry, I skipped. <laughs> when he comes into our land, partners up when he comes into our land, clearly, obviously, right? And then uh, when he treads in our palaces or citadels, partners up, and he shall deliver us from 
the Assyrian. Then we see, uh, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and that partners up, obviously, with their action. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. So the central focus is on these shepherds that the Lord, uh, well, that the people of God, I suppose you could say, raise up to face Assyria. Now, um, okay, looking at this, there's a, there's a couple things about this. Um, well, and he shall be their peace, right? We spoke a bit about what peace is, all right? We spoke, we, what did we say about peace? What is peace? What is shalom? Who remembers? Go ahead, sir. Sit under, sitting under your own vine and under your own fig tree? Yeah, that's a big part of peace. Absolutely, with none to make you afraid? Most definitely. Uh, what else do we say about uh, shalom? Go ahead. It's also peace with God, yes, yes, absolutely. Anything else? Looking at it from a broader context, what is, what is peace in the Bible? Good. Wellness and wholeness, absolutely. Yep, peace uh, in, in, the, in Scripture is a restoration of order, right? It's a restoration of the harmony that God created when he created all things, right? It's a, uh, when Adam sinned, right, when he died, he died in numerous ways. We spoke about this a lot, right? How did Adam die? What's broken in our world? Go ahead. Huh? Everything. Everything, right. But what we... Uh, how do I put this? Okay, so when we look at when we look at our, our world, right? When God made man, He made man, well, in perfect harmony with Himself, yes, as the steward and Lord over the earth, correct? He made man with a partner, yes, right? uh, a helper to help guide him and help him shepherd all of. Uh, creation, right, to bring it under his dominion, under God, and lastly, um, it's not stated so, but I can guarantee you that Adam had no conflict within himself as to who he was or what his purpose was, right? He was whole internally, or we could say psychologically if you want, as well, right? He was not broken in the slightest. Now, when Adam sinned, there was a fracturing that occurred, right? Uh, firstly and foremost, sin created, as Isaiah says, a separation between him and God, right? That's one form of death, and, and there's an ultimate form of death when man's body is separated from himself, and he's eternally separated from God, right? Well, I shouldn't say that's the eternal state for that individual, for those individuals, right? The eternal state would be a resurrected body and eternally separated from God, right? Um, however, when we think of death, when we think of uh, that, we think of the soul leaving the body. See, so man is separated even from himself. But um, the first form is man being separated from God. Next, 
clearly we see a fracturing in relationship between man and his fellow man, right? Yes? No? Maybe? I mean, Adam and Eve are pointing the finger at each other, right? But they have children, and what happens right away? One brother kills the other, right? Yes. So there's a fracturing of relationship between man and man. And we see also, as part of the curse, that there's a fracturing between the relationship that man has with the earth as well. Right? It doesn't yield what it's supposed to yield for man. As a matter of fact, all of nature is trying its hardest to kill man, isn't it? Right? The world is quite unforgiving. Uh, there's no peace, if you will, between uh, man and the wild. We're to tame the wild, absolutely, but still, if you get a pet tiger, you'll probably end up in its <laughs> stomach, right? That's just the nature of things as it, as it stands right now. And that's why part of um, those great promises that we see, especially in places like Isaiah, where it talks about the children playing with the adder, right? A, a deadly poisonous serpent. Like why would that picture be used? Because now there's a restoration between man, uh, between man and uh, the rest of creation, man and the world, right? So that's part of this piece that, that is spoken about. And um, lastly, we see the final form of this would be in terms of, well, in, in terms of the resurrection, I suppose you could say, where man gets his body back. He becomes whole and complete man again. Right? Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, you, you hear a lot, especially in um, different philosophies, right? Where, or different, just, I don't know, mysticism, all kinds of weirdness, uh, religion, etc. We always try to ask the question, what is the nature of man, right? What is mankind? What is a man? Uh, in his mannishness, right? So, a lot of times, the answer, at least, when we deal with the more mystical or the more metaphysical, saying man is not his body, right? Man is merely, his, you know, his soul or whatever they might think uh, dwells within, gives us our personalities, our lives. And so, they think the body is superfluous. We don't need it. Uh, however, that's not what man is, right? And on the other end of that extreme, I mean, <laughs> we're just meat bags, right? Just basically, <laughs> that's all man is. And our personality and all of those things is just chemical reactions happening inside of that gray matter in the head, right? And that's all man is. There's no immaterial part of man. But we know that's not the case. Man is both material and immaterial, right? Man is the thing that bridges the gap between the spiritual and the physical, right? God made man from the dirt and breathed into him, giving him life, you know? So the essence of man is both physical and spiritual, both physical and immaterial, right? And those two things must be united in order for man to be whole, in order for man to be 
what man is supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, the ultimate end of everything is that the physical and the spiritual, you know, heaven and earth, be united, right? Very much so. That's what Christ came to do. He came to unite heaven and earth, and he uh, embodied that perfectly, right? Perfect union of heaven and earth in the person of Christ, demonstrating to us that he is, in fact, our peace, our restoration, our wholeness, right? So that's what it talks about when it talks about peace. It's much, much deeper than mere cessation of conflict or war, right? It's a restoration of, well, the ultimate uh, divine order, the fulfilling of God's purpose in creation and the individual as well. Okay? Now, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads within our borders, so this is where it starts to get funny, right? This is where it starts to get tough. Okay. Because clearly this is speaking of the Messianic period, right? However, the Assyrian Empire no longer existed when the Messiah was around, right? Who was, who was ruling when the Messiah was there? Simple question. Rome, yeah, easy. Right? That's an easy one. The Romans, they were around, not the Assyrians. So it should say, right, uh, when the Romans come into our land. Well, no, it can't say that. It can't at all. Be why? Well, because they wouldn't, number one, they wouldn't have understood, right? But again, this section is highly symbolic. It's a song. It's a poem, you know? Um, but still, it is highly symbolic. When the Assyrian, or the land of Nimrod, as it says in verse 6, um, is a stand-in, right, for all of the enemies of God and his people, okay? It's acting as a stand-in for the enemies of God. Because remember, the Assyrians were long gone by the time Christ came. So again, this enemy is used symbolically as uh, a symbol of all the enemies of Christ and the church. It was, at the time, the largest and most pressing threat uh, that Israel faced or Judah faced. Um, so, of course, it's going to be used as a stand-in for the rest of the enemies. Remember what we said about that, um, or these empires, how we spoke about them when we're going through the introduction? We went through, we read a little bit of Daniel, right, where Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, this dream of this great and tall statue, right? And each one, it's made of different metals. Yes, you guys remember this account, of course. You had, in each of those medals, there's four of them, and they represent four different empires, right? The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire, right? And what do we say about the Assyrians? I said, well, we could think of the Assyrians as like the hat on that tall man, because these empires are one, and they are one. I mean, if you look at it, the Assyrian Empire, when we had the map, uh, surrounded Israel, went all the way up into, well, I'm trying to think, current day, what, I have to look at a map myself now, I don't really go back to the current day, jeez, well, either way, way north of Israel, to the um, west, to the east, into, into Babylon, which would be 
modern-day Iraq, Iran, down into um, Asia, all through uh, Egypt, etc. And then Babylon came along with the Elamites and conquered um, Assyria and toppled Assyria and ruled in its place the same empire and expanded it. And then the Medo-Persians uh, came along and did the same thing and expanded it. And then the Greeks came along and they all ruled the same empire. And at the heart of each one of these empires is little tiny Israel, right there in the middle, surrounded by these vast, vast um, empires. So Assyria, we can safely place within that context. Because remember, why, why didn't Nebuchadnezzar dream of the Assyrian Empire as part of that statue? Well, it didn't exist at the time. It was already conquered. It was gone. Yes? But he still ruled over the same land. He became the Assyrian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar did. The Babylonian Empire became the Assyrian Empire, just like the Medo-Persians became the Babylonians. And then the Greeks became them as well, etc., on and on through the Romans. As a matter of fact, if you <coughs> really want to think about things, um, these empires, it's funny. If, if we go uh, to Daniel, you don't have to go there. I'll just uh, read, I suppose, as, as quickly as I, I can, because this is another one of those rabbit trails. Um, <coughs> It's just something I find to be interesting. All right, let's see here. Sorry. I don't think I'm going to be able to find it as quickly as I'd like, unfortunately. That's too bad. Uh, it's dealing with the four beasts. Uh, it talks about how those four beasts, they have their power taken away from them, but they still exist in some form. You know, they're still, they're still hanging around. Uh, oh, yeah, here you go. In verse 12 of chapter 7 of Daniel says, As for the rest of the beasts, the dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Their lives were still prolonged. They still, their, their power was removed from them, but they still existed in, in some form or, or another. <laughs> and, you know, the Roman Empire, I mean, you have them existing after their fall for a very, very long period of time. As a matter of fact, there's still a place in our world called Rome, right? And it's embodied by what we now call the, well, the Roman Catholic Church, right? But even still, the all the way through the time of World War I, uh, Germany was considered the Holy Roman Empire, and the, the, the Prince of Germany, or the King of Germany, was considered the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, you know? Uh, so they existed in some form or another all the way through. And as a matter of fact, if you look at our seal, we have a relic of the Romans today trying to claim some of that power.
power and some of that authority, right? What's, what's like adorns the top of many flags? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, golden eagle. That's right, yeah. We still try to use some of that symbolism that came from Rome, you know, to draw our power from. Yeah, we, it, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that that still is around to this day. They still exist in some form or another. Still go back and look and say, okay, well, what's a powerful, uh, well, they were the most powerful. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, the legal system especially. Uh, a lot of Western society, or all of Western society, claims Rome as its heritage. We believe that we should learn the classics, right? We should, all that. So <laughs> Latin is still taught, right? Uh, it's still a language that is it's going by the wayside, unfortunately, just like everything else. But it was still taught until recently, still is taught in some circles and along with Greek and Hebrew, right? You guys learned Latin, yes? Oh, uh, you're gonna be learning Latin. Okay, you haven't learned it yet, so I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but, no, either way, yeah. Um, we still try to draw, my, my, my point was. Uh, we, like the medievals, like uh, everyone who came after, still tries to draw on the heritage, the rich, um, power tradition that Rome had. And you go all the way back through, that is begins sort of here. Assyria was the first world power, and that nation is used at least at this point as a stand-in for all of those nations that will come after. Okay? And all of these great go ahead. It's all right. Also, uh, it's mentioned uh, the gates of Nimrod. Or the, yeah. yeah. Know, so Nimrod goes all the way back to Genesis. Right. Goes all the way back to before Noah, I believe. After. It, 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 yeah, it was post post diluvian. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. He so set up. City, What's up? That's right. Absolutely. He was a mighty hunter. Mighty. My, my gosh. A mighty hunter opposing the Lord, right? Uh, it says before in our text, but we spoke about that a little bit, that word there can be used in numerous ways, and the one that makes the most sense would be in opposition to, right? Opposing God, mighty hunter. Like, think of, think of uh, a, this is a, don't want to compare God to this, you know, but I'm, the, using the word, using the word, think of two prize fighters standing against each other posed against each other, right? That's the idea. They are before each other, but in opposition to each other, yes? That's how that word is uh, used there. He opposed God, Nimrod did, and he built himself an empire, right? He was the first of the mighty men. Um, and yeah, he built what is Assyria, right? And what became Babylon and what became um, so it goes way back, way, way back to, to that period, right? He built Babel, uh, and 
Babel, Babylon, right? Yeah, that's where it comes from, the land of Nimrod. And so, yeah, using the land of Nimrod, thank you for, for um, mentioning that, Steve, for using the land, uh, using the word, the language, the land of Nimrod, um, that points us, as you said, back to that period. That shows us what he's talking about. He is speaking about these great, powerful empires that oppose God, right? That's the idea that's being presented to us here, uh, that, that oppose the Lord and his anointed, like it says in um, Psalm 2. So uh, when the Assyrian comes into our land, as I said, uh, is used as a stand-in there. Um, okay, so I think we've, we've uh, beat that horse a little bit. So uh, let's go down to the next part of this section. Um, then we will raise against, this is where it starts to get funny. This is the part that becomes a, a mite difficult. And you'll have uh, interpretations that are all over the place and we can get into to some, some fun ones, okay? So, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. Now, what's there's a little play on words that occurs here. That word shepherd there, on um, the vast majority of the time, it does mean shepherd, but it also, in the semantic domain of this, it does mean to, um, to waste, to devour, right? So, uh, in terms of its play on words, we have it rules over and lays waste to, you know, simultaneously. That's why I believe in the New King James, and oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately, I should have wrote it down. Uh, it says, it, it would say, um, to lay waste. And they shall lay waste uh, the land of Assyria with the sword. So this is one of those sections where we see a play on words. Um, now, the premillennial position you know, has some fun interpretations with this, especially when dealing with the dispensational premillennial position. You know, they, and the historic, I, I suppose, I didn't really read too many historic premillennial sources as I was going through this, but I'd imagine it would be very similar to the dispensational premillennial position at this point. It says that, um, that this part right here, because they understand that this is the messianic reign of Christ, right? However, in order for this to be true, they read this text um, literalistically, we can say, and say that, no, this must be talking about that rod of iron rule, excuse me, that occurs during the thousand year reign of Christ, right? And if they're pre, uh, or, yeah, pre-trip or whatever it would be, then this occurs after that tribulation and all that other stuff, right? So, um, reading it that way, though, uh, poses a number of problems, right? Well, firstly, if we were to read it that woodenly, then it must be Assyria that comes into their land. But there is no Assyria today or tomorrow or whenever. Assyria's gone, right? That, that land is now a, well, that empire is forgotten, largely, anyway. So... That doesn't really work. That doesn't really work. And plus, um, again, the seven shepherds and eight princes of men 
part, that one, reading it in that manner still, uh, there are no answers as to what that would mean, unless it's just like raising up seven or eight generals to go and lay waste to the land of Assyrian. Plus, if we're going to read it that woodenly as well, you have to say they do all of this with the sword, you know, in terms of modern technology. Good luck with that, right? You don't bring a sword to a gunfight. Indiana Jones taught us this. Yes? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Doesn't really work. You can't read it that woodenly. You can't read the text that, that woodenly. Um, and again, this section again is highly symbolic. We know this because at the time of the, well, firstly, it's a song, number one. Number two, Mike is a prophet, and that's how they spoke. And number three, um, Assyria was gone when, when this prophecy was going to come to pass, or has come to pass, or is coming to pass, however you want to look at this. Uh, so there is no Assyria at the time of the Messiah. Right? It was Rome at that point. Now, uh, looking at, uh, let's see here. Yeah, all right. We'll, we'll dismiss that. So, go ahead. Shoot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's another way that we know that this is symbolic, right? Or that this is poetic, or however you want to say it, right? You see this kind of language in other places in Scripture, right? In the Proverbs, etc. Right? Uh, it's not. It's not giving you a woodenly literal number, right? It's not saying that. Yep, we're going to raise up seven, um, seven shepherds and eight sheiks of men. No, that's not what we're going to do. Uh, it is, like you say, a number of completion, the perfect number. Um, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the picture that's used, that uh, enough to get the job done, if you will. You know what I mean? I, again, it's, it's a form of Hebrew poetry, right? Or I shouldn't say a form of, it's a, it's a device that they would use, you know? So, Someone's, oh, good. What about, uh, since it's not wooden, um, mm. Assyria being uh, the power of the prince of the air, the power of the air, uh, the world system that opposes Christ. Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. And, um, Any world power that opposes the church what, and Christ. And I'm, I'm probably stepping too far, but mm. now, what about the sanctification of the individual believer? Assyria being a besetting sin, and the seven, the seven shepherds and sheiks, seven and eight, sort of, you know, become, you know, like our pastors, our leaders. No, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far in terms of. I mean, I'm sure you can. You can go and make that kind of application, but um, this is talking about the church as a whole. You know, a lot of times when we, when we read sections of Scripture where you'll see the word you there, we'll immediately go and try to apply it to an individual, right? But a lot of times it's in the plural, like in, in terms of the Pauline epistles, etc. It's speaking to the group as a whole, you know? Um, uh, the, the charismatic movement is famous for this, right? 
they do this quite a bit. They'll take promises of God that are for the nation and try to apply it to the individual, right? Um, if God is blessing a nation, we'll say, right, because they're being obedient, does that mean that every single individual in that nation is going to be rich or blessed in terms of the way they see it? No. No, that's not what that means at all. As a matter of fact, we can go back and, and do it the other way. When God is disciplining the nation because they're being disobedient, does that mean that every single individual who is faithful is going to be blessed? No, they're going to suffer the discipline of God along with their nation, right? S same holds true with any sort of covenantal institution. God deals covenantally with men, right? So if a church, let's say, which is a covenantal institution, is being faithful, even somebody who's secretly hiding sin will end up having some blessing, you know, in their, in, from the faithfulness of the church and vice versa. You know, someone who is devout and faithful in a unfaithful church will still suffer whatever penalties that God pours out upon that church, whatever discipline that God has in store for that church, they will still suffer the like, okay? So, uh, again, God deals covenantally with men, you know? And <laughs> we were, you guys were talking a bit, and this is another rabbit trail, but it's okay. Um, talking about um, the millennial position that people, people like. To, to discuss, I suppose. Um, one of the biggest criticisms of post-millennialism is that, well, you know, bad things happen in the world to good people, as they say, you know what I mean? That we think that, like, oh, things are just going to continue to go better, 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 right? You know, the world is just going to go in a steep upward climb. And it's like, no, 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 no. God deals covenantally with his church, you know? Part of those promises that God gave to David, etc., um, about the Messiah is that, well, that he will discipline his children with the rod of men, right? I mean, Christ told us this. Um, if you lose your saltiness, what happens? You get thrown out. You're good for nothing. You get thrown out and trampled under your feet by men. So when the world takes a downward turn, it's... It's part of that covenantal system that God, uh, God has created, and the way that God deals with with people. So, and like we can look at our day right now because this does apply and this does work for us because, well, we live in the Empire State. Yes. <laughs> so this is one of those cases where an empire is opposing um, Christ and His Church, right? Right, trying to usurp the authority of Christ. As a matter of fact, as Anthony was pointing out, trying to lay claim to uh, the authority of Christ and command um, the church to do its bidding, which is utterly disgusting, right? Now, why does that happen? Why, why don't, well, I mean, New York at one point was a faithful state, I'd imagine. Yes, way back when. But now, clearly, look at it. It's, it's, it's wicked, wicked. I mean, the whole Northeast used to be faithful. Um, 
founded by the Puritans and the like, but it's, it's utterly wicked, right? Right now. Go ahead. What are you going to say? What, what is it a reflection of? It's a reflection of the church in truth, you know. It's a reflection of the church um, not doing its job or being lax in certain areas, right? Um, so if the church doesn't do its job, doesn't continually do its job, um, is hypocritical or whatever, it loses its saltiness, as Christ says, it loses its voice, right? So it losing its voice, it no longer holds sway over uh, men, and what happens? They become ignored, irrelevant. They are trampled underfoot, as it were, right? If the salt loses its savor, it is good for nothing but to be thrown out, right? Um, so that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And now Christ, God, uses uh, men, uses wicked men to discipline his people, right? That's how that works. But then once that discipline is done, they're thrown away. They're discarded. The most wonderful example we have of this, then we can close and we'll finish this up, I guess, uh, next week, is um, the Babylonian Empire. It's so perfect. You could use that so perfectly, right? Israel was in sin. Judah was in sin. So God raised up this great and powerful empire that conquered the known world at the time, just laying uh, waste to nations, conquering them, taking them over, defeated mighty Assyria, and then claimed them as, claimed its territory as its own, destroyed the temple, uh, put in a puppet king in terms of uh, Judah, and beat Egypt, beat everybody. Everyone that faced it, you know, perished. God gave Nebuchadnezzar rule over everything. That's what he says. And so... Uh, God said he was going to discipline, hold on, God said he was going to discipline Israel for 70 years. And once that 70 years was up, Babylon was gone, wiped out in a single evening. It, well, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it was just completely destroyed, annihilated. You know, again, one of those um, names that is just historically forgotten. You know, it's, it has no sway, no power. The, the Persians came through and took them over. We're at, at that 70-year period, you know, because God raised this great nation up to discipline his people, right? History turns on the church, on the people of God, you know? Go ahead, what were you going to say? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the Romans, the Romans, um, after Constantine, when they uh, legalized and then had later adopted Christianity, Christianity shaped um, a lot of Roman, well, it did, it shaped the 
entire Roman culture, reshaped, I should say, the entire Roman culture. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there's, 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 uh, oh, look at that. <laughs> uh, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. No, no, no. <laughs> um, the imp, what is the lesson for us to learn? Well, there are a number of things that we, we can learn from this. No, well, firstly, we have to remain faithful, period. Like, no matter what's happening around you, you know, you remain faithful, regardless. It's gonna hurt, like uh, it's gonna. You're gonna suffer, yes. But you do remain faithful. You don't cave ever. You know that's the only way you're gonna get your voice back too. You know, is by standing firm and standing strong. You never ever ever cave. Um, so many people cave to the state, and especially in New York, because New York has figured out, just like the Muslims, that what you do is you play with people's money, right? You start taking away their livelihoods and then people will rule over, right? So you go about poor and destitute and you don't care. You know, you trust the Lord. Um, that's what you do. Or, and then, I mean, there's a number of different responses to this question, um, depending on who you are, what God calls you to, you know? Uh, when it says we, he raise, we raise up seven, Shepherds of men, eight shakes. There are some people who are called to go and stand, you know, and and speak, and be martyred, you know, and those people who are called to be martyred, you know, um, they martyrs bring about change, absolutely, you know, and there, but it's a calling, a very specific calling, you know. Not everybody is called to stand that way, uh, in that manner, in a public forum, you know what I mean. Um, some people do work behind the scenes, but I think that you you knuckle down, you know, and focus on the church itself, just as Elisha did when we were going through Kings and we spoke about this. Elijah had a public ministry where he went and he spoke to Ahab again and again and again. Elisha abandoned that and only went and spoke to the kings when the kings sought him out. He focused on building up the small remnant, the, the, the body of believers to um, weather the storm, if you will, you know. So, again, some people are called to stand publicly, but the rest, I mean, our, our task has always been to focus on building up the, the, the body, you know. And then, you know, if it gets, if it gets bad enough, you know, there, there is some, at some point you do, you do cut and run, you know, you do. You're told to. Uh, you shake the dust and, and go. You know that's just how that's how it works. So um, especially when you see the armies are coming in. You know that's again another lesson you can learn some symbolically or, or otherwise. Uh, all right. So let's let's close in prayer. So heavenly Father, Lord, and we thank you for your word and your wisdom, Father God, and. Um, we do thank you that all of these things happen as an example for us, that you've taught us and shown us how it is that you work in the world, Lord God, and so that we might be um, equipped and um, 
able to interpret and understand the times in which we live, Father. And we pray that you'd give us that wisdom, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, how it is that we're supposed to uh, act and react in our, in our world, Lord God. But not just being reactionary, but being um, proactive in terms of what it is that you have called us to do, regardless of what the world is doing around us, Father. You are always faithful, and Christ always is our peace, Father God. And we thank you for that. And we do thank you that we can gather and worship uh, you without fear of reprisal at this point, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that, um, well, that you've called this body together specifically, Father. And we pray, Lord, as we seek to worship you as, as one body, that we would come together um, with one voice and one mind, Lord God, that we would uh, be singular in our purpose here today, Lord, that you would be glorified and magnified through our worship, that you would be exalted and lifted up, Father God, that we, as your people, might be edified, um, that you might teach us, that you might uh, guide us and send us forth into the world to fulfill the purpose uh, by which you've called us, Father God. And we pray, Lord, as uh, we pray and sing to you, Lord, that you'd receive our prayers and hear them and answer them, Father God, and as we uh, listen to the sermon, Father, that it would be uh, you speaking uh, to each and every one of us, Father, conforming us to the image of your Son, being changed and molded by your word, Father God. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>